All right. I, I'm, as I said, I'm really excited uh, to be with you. It's been a journey to get here. Only just got off the plane, drove straight here, uh, and it's good to be with you. Uh, yeah. This uh, week, we're going to be unpacking, exploring, uh, as I said, what is the most fundamental, the most foundational question that anyone can ask, uh, and that question is, who is our God? Uh, who is He? Uh, and as we're going to see, the Christian answer to that question uh, is that our God is the triune God. Um, but more than that, our God is the triune God who has made Himself known in the man, Jesus Christ, uh, who lived, who walked this earth uh, 2,000 years ago and who is alive today. Uh, and at the very heart of our understanding of God is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so this week we're going to explore, we're going to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity, um, but in particular... Um, how this triune God has made himself known in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, before we kind of jump in properly, I thought it might uh, be helpful to just explain what you might be able, to ex be able to expect out of the talks this week. Um, I call them talks uh, because we're going to go a little bit deeper than what you might normally expect uh, from like a, a Sunday sermon. They're not quite lectures, uh, but they are designed to stretch us, uh, to grow us. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not going to assume anything, uh, so I'm going to assume nothing, but I'm hopefully going to stretch all of us. Uh, and so we're going to go deep, we're going to go long. Uh, you don't need a theology, theology degree to keep up, but you do need your booklets. Um, so if you've got your booklet there, uh, you'll see uh, there's lots of stuff in there. That'll help you track with kind of the points and the subpoints. Uh, it's got all the quotes, all the Bible, all the diagrams uh, for the week. Uh, and so uh, grab those open and have those there uh, as we follow along. Uh, in terms of where we're going, I'll kind of explain a little bit more later, uh, but it's worth knowing that these talks are really structured as a series of talks, where kind of each one builds on the one that has come before. You can kind of think of them a little bit like chapters in a book, kind of building on each other. Um, all of them are heading towards talk number five, uh, and so, talk number five, that's where the rubber is really going to hit the road. Uh, that's where we're going to unpack all the implications, all the applications uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity in the God-man. And so, if you're sitting there for like the first four talks and you're like, what is the point of all of this? Hang tight till talk five. Uh, that's where we're going to land it. Uh, we're going to do a Bible reading before kind of each of the talks. Um, I'm not going to like work through those. I think it'll be kind of more, we're going to look at lots of Bible, um, but we will kind of touch on those Bible readings that we do together. Uh, but with that said, uh, why don't I lead us in prayer uh, for our time together? Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for this wonderful opportunity uh, to spend a week together a week together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, we pray, please bless our, bless our fellowship, uh, and a week sitting under your word uh, as we grow to know who you are as our Heavenly Father. We pr pray, uh, please bless our time together, uh, focus our minds, and soften our hearts. Uh, and we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Uh, well, I want to start by showing you a little clip. Um, just a heads up, it's a little bit random. Uh, the humour's a little bit weird, but I think you'll pretty quickly see the relevance uh, as we start to kind of journey in this uh, exploration of the doctrine of the Trinity. So, let's watch the clip. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time, so try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, Obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. Uh, as I said, it's a little bit random. But I think it actually captures some of our common experiences when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Uh, for some of us, it could be that the doctrine of the Trinity makes very little sense at all. Uh, the idea that God could be both one and three might seem like a total contradiction, as if saying one plus one plus one equals one. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, or it could be that so far your experience of the Trinity and God has been limited to some bad analogies, um, as if a three-leaf clover or water is the thing that most accurately captures the triune nature of our glorious and majestic God. Is that the best explanation of that God? Um, have you ever heard one of those analogies and found it dissatisfying? Um, have you ever used one and found that it wasn't all that convincing? Uh, I wonder if our overuse of bad analogies has actually left us with the impression that our God is a watery three-headed leaf, um, which starts to sound pretty bizarre and pointless. Uh, or maybe your experience of the Trinity um, has largely been one of overcomplicated arguments about obscure terms such as substance, essence, consubstantiality, all of which can leave us with the impression that the doctrine of the Trinity is really just the result of a bunch of over-pedantic dead guys. Um, and if that's true, then the doctrine of the Trinity is at best trivial and unnecessary, but at worst, it leaves Christianity with a major intellectual weakness. Uh, so have a look at what the prominent atheist Richard Dawkins says about the Trinity. It's there uh, in your booklets. It's the first one there. He says, rivers of medieval ink, not to mention blood, have been squandered over the mystery of the Trinity and in suppressing deviations such as the Arian heresy. Arius of Alexandria, in the 4th century AD, denied that Jesus was consubstantial, i.e. of the same substance or essence with God. What on earth could that possibly mean, you're probably asking? Uh, substance? What substance? What exactly do you mean by essence? Very little seems the only reasonable reply. According to Dawkins, this doctrine is built on obscure arguments about trivial terms, such as consubstantial, that are almost meaningless, and people paid for it with their blood. Um, Dawkins, he goes on to quote uh, US President Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he says this about the Trinity. Ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. And no man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. It is the mere abracadabra of the mountebanks calling themselves the priests of Jesus. Uh, if you, like me, are wondering what a mountebank is, uh, it's someone who tricks people out of money. Uh, someone who's selling snake oil. And so Jefferson, he's saying the doctrine of the Trinity, it's nothing more than a mental magic trick. It's an abracadabra designed to trick people into giving their money to the church. Uh, and so he says the idea of the Trinity, it's an unintelligible proposition. It's religious hocus pocus. And so Jefferson, he says, doctrine of the Trinity, this idea, the only thing we can do is really ridicule it. Uh, and all of that can leave us with the impression that this doctrine of the Trinity is a major Achilles heel 
of the Christian faith. Um, Let me ask you, have you ever felt just a little bit embarrassed by the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity? The idea that Jesus is both God and man? Um, Thinking to yourself, it it doesn't, doesn't really make sense, but I know I'm supposed to believe it. I want to start this series of talks on the doctrine of the Trinity by showing you why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. Uh, And not just important, uh, but that it's of central importance, crucial importance, critical importance. So, uh, in order to do that, I'm going to need to take you back in time. Uh, I want to take you back before COVID. Uh, I want to take you back before the internet. I want to take you back even before MySpace. Uh, back before the discovery of electricity. I want to take you back sometime around the 5th century AD. So, city of Rome has been sacked, Roman Empire is starting to collapse. But before we go to the 5th century, I need to give you a warning. You can consider me your flight attendant. I had some flight attendants today. Uh, You need some safety. Uh, So, I need to give you a warning. It comes from the novelist L.P. Hartley. wrote the novel The Go-Between. Um, And it starts like this. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Over the next uh, week, we're going to be listening to voices from the past. Uh, Second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, 11th, 12th, 13th, 16th centuries. Not to mention the Bible itself, which is older. Uh, And some of these voices, they're going to speak, they're going to think differently to us. Uh, I'll do my best to introduce some of them along the way. Um, But even though they might seem a little bit different to us, uh, there is a deep and a rich heritage for us there. So, with that said, come back with me, back in time, to sometime around the 5th century, when what's known as the Athanasian Creed was first written. Um, If you're paying attention in that video, um, you might remember that St. Patrick character actually quoted the Athanasian Creed. That was that thing at the end. Um, It's also called the Kagumke Vault. Uh, And this is how it starts. There in your booklet. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic universal faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic universal faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now, there are probably a couple of initial responses that you might have to what we just read there in the Athanasian Creed. Um, At one level, it is quite a nice little summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. One God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. Uh, You might also be wondering about that word Catholic. And when it says Catholic, um, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church, which didn't actually exist back in the 5th century. And when it says Catholic, it means universal, uh, as I've put in the brackets there, which is to say that it is agreed upon by all Christians. 
Um, and that's really what leads to the thing that stands out to me when I read that creed. Did you notice that it basically said, um, if you don't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, you aren't saved? It literally says, um, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Does that sound like a bit of an overstatement to you? Like, it could sound like it's saying, you need to articulate a doctrine of the Trinity in order to be saved. And that's a bit problematic. I mean, how many of us could articulate a doctrine of the Trinity as it's described in that Athanasian Creed? What about children? What about them? Um, I don't think that's actually what it's saying. It's not saying that you're not saved if you can't articulate a doctrine of the Trinity. What it's saying is that our salvation depends upon the doctrine of the Trinity. Our salvation depends upon the fact that our God is triune. How so? At the very heart of the Christian faith, at the very heart, um, at the very heart of our salvation is the reality that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we just read before. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Uh, that is the reality that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. But the fact is, only God can forgive sins. Um, the Pharisees, religious rulers in the first century, they knew that. Uh, and so look at how the Pharisees respond when Jesus forgives a man his sins. Uh, Luke 5, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? So only God can forgive sins. Makes sense. Only the person uh, sinned against can forgive a sin. But here's the point I want to draw your attention to. If Jesus has truly paid for our sins and only God can forgive sins, then Jesus must be God. If Jesus is not God, then who paid for your sins? And to say that Jesus is God is actually a Trinitarian claim. It's a claim about who God is in relation to Jesus and who He is in relation to the one He called His Father and the one He called the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is not God... We are not saved. The gospel makes no sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the point. The heart of the doctrine of the Trinity is the confession that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that's exactly what the Athanasian Creed is saying. A denial of the Trinity is itself a denial of the gospel and of our own salvation. Um, so why is the doctrine of the Trinity important? The first reason it's important is for your salvation. Your salvation is built upon and depends on the triunity of our God. 
Uh, but there's also a second reason why this doctrine is so important. It's not just important for your salvation, but actually for the entirety of your Christian faith. Uh, it's important for your faith. Uh, we're at point 2.2 in the booklet. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, if you had to write a creed or if you had to write a statement of faith, um, what would you start with? What would you put at the top? Um, maybe you could start with creation because that's how the Bible starts. Uh, maybe you could start with the fact that uh, the Bible is God's word um, because that's the foundation, the basis of our knowledge of God. Um, maybe you want to start with Jesus because actually the whole Bible is all about Jesus and he sits at the centre of everything. Um, it might interest you uh, to know that most of the great creeds and statements of faith written over the centuries, most start with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, we've already seen that with the Athanasian Creed, uh, but it's also the case with what's called the 39 Articles. So the 39 Articles, they were written 1571, so 500 years ago, written by a guy called Thomas Cranmer, and it was the statement of faith for what was known as the Church of England now known as the Anglican Church. Uh, I'm a minister in an Anglican Church. Uh, and this is how the 39, 39 articles start. Number one, of faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts or passions, of infinite power, wisdom and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, and in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, why do the 39 articles start with the doctrine of the Trinity? They start there because the thing that makes Christianity Christian is who our God is. Who our God is determines the shape and content of every part of our faith. Um, have a listen to what the theologian Michael Reeves says about this. This is from the book that I mentioned before, Delighting in the Trinity. What makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. Which God we worship, that is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself and every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation and salvation of this God, the triune God. Um, and what he's saying there is that every part of the Christian faith, whether it's creation, salvation, revelation, everything depends upon the identity of our triune God. Um, so one way of thinking about this is to imagine the kind of Christian faith as a web, like a spider web of beliefs that all kind of hang together. And so you've got different beliefs about creation, scripture, church, predestination, the end times, even things like marriage, relationships, identity. And all of these beliefs hang in a web of kind of interconnected, in an interconnected way. And maybe we'd put the gospel at the center. 
uh, because as we saw earlier, it's of a first importance. Um, there's a little diagram there for you. But if you put the gospel at the center, then the doctrine of the Trinity is like the anchor point of the whole web. It's the thing that anchors everything and determines the shape of the whole web. And some things they're going to be more immediately connected to the doctrine of the Trinity than others, um, but it's the anchor for everything. So why is the doctrine of the Trinity important? It's important not just for your salvation, but actually for the entirety of your faith. It's the anchor point. Uh, but there is one more reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is of critical importance, and that is for your worship. For your worship. See, the purpose of theology is never for the sake of knowledge in and of itself. Um, the purpose of theology is doxology, praise. Uh, the purpose of theology is not only to know God, but to love, to adore, to worship Him. It's not just cerebral, it's relational. And the doctrine of the Trinity is where we learn to name and know God as He really is. Um, my surname is Cleworth, C-L-E, Worth. Uh, throughout my whole life, though, people have mispronounced my name. Uh, high school were some dark days when you'd have a different teacher calling roll call every time. And so more, than, more often than not, uh, actually, like, it was wrong more than it was right. Um, and I'd get things like uh, Charles Clayworth, Clemworth, Clentworth. Um, that was a good one. Uh, a friend actually the other day sent me like a little uh, a, a photo of like an old yearbook um, and my name was Clemworth in the yearbook, which is not my name. <laughs> my name is Cleworth. Um, and if somebody mispronounced my name, it's because they didn't know me very well. But when you get to know me, you know my name is Cleworth. In the doctrine of the Trinity, that's where we learn to name and to know God as He really is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means relating to God as He really is, worshipping Him as He is. So why is the doctrine of the Trinity important? Uh, three reasons, for your salvation, for your faith, and for your worship. But at this point, you might still be wondering... What is the doctrine of the Trinity? Because we still haven't properly defined it. Uh, at one level, that's what we're going to do over the whole week, is really answering that question, what is the doctrine? Uh, but it's probably worth establishing a bit of a starting point for us, so we know what we're talking about. Uh, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, in your booklet there, uh, in a sentence, the doctrine of the Trinity is to know, love, and worship God as... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and I say no love and worship uh, for that reason I just mentioned before. The purpose of theology isn't just to know about God or even just to know God, at least in an intellectual sense, but to love Him, to worship Him, which means our doctrine is incomplete if it doesn't lead to worship. Uh, but it's not simply the knowledge, love, and worship of God... Rather, it's the knowledge, love, and worship of this God, the one who is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the fourth century theologian, 
Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, he puts it like this. When I say God, I mean Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. But say you want a little more flesh on the bones. So let's, uh, maybe you want more than one sentence. I'll give you three. I say three because I think the doctrine of the Trinity can really be summarized by learning to say three things. Uh, The first is this. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms the existence of one God. Uh, First point is pretty straightforward. There is only one God, not many, not three, one. But we also need to go on to say a second thing. The doctrine of the Trinity identifies the Father, Son and Holy Spirit with the one God. Now, this point brings a little bit more complexity. And what it's saying is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are each identical with the one God. Which is, there's no God beyond, no God between, and no God beside the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is the one God through and through. Likewise, the Son is the one God through and through. And the same for the Spirit. They're not just parts of God or aspects of God. Each of them is the one God through and through. But then there's a third thing that we need to add. The doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes the Father, Son and Holy Spirit by the relations between them. Now, uh, this third thing is saying that the Father is Father because He's the Father of the Son. That's what makes Him the Father. Um, His relation to the Son is what distinguishes Him from the Son and identifies Him as the Father. And likewise, the Son is the Son because He is the Son of the Father. And again, for the Spirit. The Spirit is Spirit, not because He is a Spirit, but because He is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son. The relations between them is what distinguishes them from one another, even as each of them is identical with the one God. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if some of that went a little over your head, um, don't worry. The rest of the week will essentially be spent learning to gain fluency in saying those three things. Learning what it means to say those three things. Um, But it could be at this point you'd really love a diagram, just some way of seeing it. Uh, And this is where we start to run into the problem with diagrams, at least when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, See, no diagram, no analogy, no illustration can properly communicate God's triune nature. Here's why. Because when we look for a diagram or an analogy, uh, what we're doing is searching for something in this creation that represents or captures something of who our triune God is. But the problem is that our God is totally unlike this creation. He is not created. He's the creator, which means that nothing in this creation can adequately represent or communicate God's triune 
nature. And just a little aside, um, in a few days' time, we're going to look at a couple of little heresies. Um, it's really easy to diagram a heresy <laughs> um, because they're wrong. Um, harder to diagram the truth. Uh, sometimes they might capture an aspect of who God is, uh, but no creaturely representation can do it comprehensively or fully. Um, which is why all these analogies about water and three-headed clovers um, end up being more unhelpful than they are helpful. Uh, so Gregory of Nazianzus, um, he says this, he says, Though I have examined the question in private, so busily and so often, searching from all points of view for an illustration of this profound matter, I have failed to find anything in this world with which I might compare the divine nature. And so as we set out on this journey together, be careful of analogies and illustrations. They often do more harm than good. Um, now, we are going to have a few diagrams as we go, uh, but they're not going to be diagrams of the Trinity itself. Uh, and that's really where we want to be careful of diagrams and analogies. But that leads us to the next stage in our journey. Uh, so far, we've explored why the Trinity is important, uh, and then we've just introduced what it actually is. Uh, but sometimes it can be helpful to explain what something is by explaining what it's not. Uh, and so what I want to do next is explain what the doctrine of the Trinity is not. And in particular, I want to kind of lay out uh, some of the pitfalls, some of the dangers when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, what we're going to see is that there are two main dangers to be aware of. Um, on the one hand is what we might call mere monotheism, where we overemphasize God's oneness. Uh, and then on the flip side is what we might call tritheism, where we overemphasize God's threeness. Mono, one, tri, three. Uh, listen to how the theologian Colin Gunton explains it. He says, uh, as in all theology, we are on a knife edge, or we might say, a narrow path with precipices on each side. On one side, we deny the unity of God and make it appear that there are three gods. On the other, we cause the distinctions of the three to disappear into some underlying, undifferentiated deity. So, just imagine us walking along a narrow path, and on one side lies, lies the sharp precipice of mere monotheism, and on the other lies tritheism. These are the twin dangers that we're going to need to keep in our sights, journeying towards uh, knowing, loving, and worshipping God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but let's push in a little bit more into each of these dangers. What do we actually mean when we say mere monotheism? It's the belief that when it comes to God, there's really just one actor, one single actor, one actor who creates, speaks, and saves. And it's the belief that we really only have one undifferentiated relationship with God. It's the idea that we relate to God in a flat, one-dimensional way. And so the Father, Son, and Spirit, they become like an unnecessary appendix to the one God. Uh, they're a non-essential accessory to a flat, one-dimensional way of relating to God. That's what we say when we're talking about um, mere monotheism. And for one theologian called Karl Rahner, 
the great majority of Christians are in danger of falling into mere monotheism. Um, So he says this, it's in your booklet, despite their orthodox confession of the Trinity, Christians are, in their practical life, almost mere monotheists. We must be willing to admit that should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature could well remain virtually unchanged. What's he saying there? He's saying that when push comes to shove, most Christians simply believe in a vague sense of God as a single entity rather than the triune God who's known as Father, Son and Spirit. Um, And he makes that point by saying that if this doctrine of the Trinity was dropped as false, then really not all that much would change for Christians. Uh, We'd continue going on, uh, praying to God, believing that God became man and that God has saved us, rather than praying to our Heavenly Father and believing that the Son became a man and that we're saved by the Son who gives us His Spirit. Um, Let me ask you this. Do you think it matters that it was the Son specifically who became flesh? Or is it only that God became man? There's a difference there. So let me ask you, who do you believe in? When push comes to shove, do you relate to God in a flat, one-dimensional way? Or do you believe not just in God, but in this God, who is known as Father, Son and Spirit? Uh, That's the danger of mere monotheism. But what about tritheism? Well, it's really the flip side of mere monotheism. Uh, It's the belief that really there are just three different actors who each do different things, and that really we have three different relationships with each of them. They're essentially three different subjects who are simply united into some kind of divine community. Um, Have a look at what the theologian Robert Letham says about this. In the West, in more recent times, a social model of the Trinity has come into prominence, bringing into sharp focus the distinctiveness of the three. When this is so, there is often a noticeably loose, almost tritheistic-sounding tendency. The Trinity is frequently compared to a human family or to three co-equals engaged in a dance around one another. Now, I've highlighted the word dance there uh, because I want to show you something. Uh, So, I am a huge, huge fan of C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't usually go a few weeks without quoting C.S. Lewis in some form or way in a sermon or something. So, I've got a huge amount of love and respect for him. But, look at how he describes the Trinity in mere Christianity. He says, In Christianity, God is not a static thing not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Did you notice that little word, dance, that we saw from that previous quote uh, from Letham? Now, Letham, he doesn't specifically mention Lewis, but is it possible that some of Lewis's language tends towards emphasizing 
uh, the threeness of God, uh, as if there were three separate actors engaged in a dance. Uh, Lethem calls this a social model of the Trinity. Uh, but we can go a little further, uh, because C.S. Lewis is probably only second to Tim Keller when it comes to my favourite thinkers and preachers. Um, now, I'm, I'm aware he actually passed, passed away uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and so uh, he is infinitely more happy and satisfied and alive now than he was when he was with us, uh, and I love him. But I am going to just critique him a little bit, um, if that's okay. Uh, and so in his book, uh, The Reason for God, so Tim Keller, he takes what C.S. Lewis says but then he pushes it even further. Um, so have a look at what he says. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. Uh, did you notice that little word, dance? But this time we also get the word community introduced. Um, have a listen to what the theologian Matthew Barrett says about that word, community. He says, uh, notice what word social Trinitarians use to define the Trinity. Community. The Trinity is a community or society, a cooperation of divine persons, each with his own center of consciousness and will. If they are three separate subjects, can they really be one God? Um, now, please don't hear me saying uh, that C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller are heretics or are somehow anti-Trinitarians. They're brilliant thinkers, brilliant defenders of the faith. Uh, I'm going to continue going on, quoting them very happily. But is it possible that maybe they have just a distinct flavour or a lean towards a more tritheistic view of God? Is it a bit loose? Uh, is it remotely possible that we have actually been influenced by this kind of thinking? Could it be that at times we have fallen into the trap of thinking of God as three separate actors of having three different relationships with the Father, Son and Spirit? Um, over the next uh, week, we're going to see that they aren't three separate subjects, not even three three different subjects in the deepest imaginable community of love. No, there's actually one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made known in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Those are the twin dangers of mere monotheism and tritheism. Uh, and over this weekend, uh, over this week, uh, we're going to try, we're going to walk the narrow path between those two pitfalls. We're going to hold God's oneness and his threeness together. Uh, and in that sense, we're going to continually need to make a bunch of micro adjustments as we make this journey. Uh, you know, when you're um, driving along in a car, you, you, you never actually hold the steering wheel straight. You're constantly making little micro-adjustments to the steering wheel in order to keep the car going straight. It's the same when it comes to the Trinity. Uh, we're going to constantly need to make micro-adjustments to stay on the narrow path between mere monotheism and tritheism. Um, why? Because we are created, we are finite, 
Uh, we're also impacted and corrupted by sin. And that means we are never going to get things perfectly right. Uh, we're never done when it comes to understanding who our God is. There is always more to learn, grow and change. I am sure that I'm going to get things wrong. And so the challenge is to move constantly from the one to the three and back to the one. And then move from the three to the one and back to the three. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, he again says it like this. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. Uh, we're going to take a little break, just a little discussion break. I've got a question for you, uh, and then we're going to continue on. So take just a few moments, uh, ask this question between yourselves. Um, do you think you lean more towards mere monotheism or tritheism in your relationship with God? Um, just with the people around you, just chat for a minute or two. Where do you lean? Let's, uh, let's bring it back. Um, so far... We've looked at why the doctrine of the Trinity is important for your, for your salvation, for your faith, for your worship. Uh, we've looked at what the doctrine of the Trinity actually is, and we've learnt to say those three things. Uh, and now we've looked at what the doctrine of the Trinity is not, the twin dangers of mere monotheism and tritheism. Uh, but with, with the rest of this talk, I want to draw your attention to something. I think, on the whole... Uh, that we, as evangelicals, that is, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, um, I think that on the whole, we have largely forgotten the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, let me explain what I mean. Uh, the first thing to know is that from the 1st century all the way through to the 18th century, there was a clear, unbroken tradition of consistent Trinitarian theology. Um, across the early church, Protestantism, even Greek Orthodox, even Roman Catholicism, there was almost total agreement, at least about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there are some pretty major differences when it comes to other doctrines, such as justification by faith, but when it comes to the Trinity, it was practically unanimous. Uh, you can open almost any theological textbook from almost any century between the 1st and 18th centuries, and it will almost certainly say exactly the same thing about the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are going to be some subtle differences, but on the whole, there was a clear and a consistent tradition. Um, there's a little timeline there, if you find that helpful. But, come down to the 21st century and to evangelical Christians in particular, which is us, and it's a very, very different story. We are confused about what the doctrine actually is. Um, back in 2020, uh, there's an organization called Lifeway. They did a survey on American evangelical Christians uh, and what they believe about the Trinity. So, four questions about the Trinity. Um, the surprising thing is that uh, the majority of people answered three out of four questions heretically. Um, that is, in disagreement with what Christians have unanimously agreed on for centuries. 
Uh, and the one question that the majority did answer correctly, it was only 53%. So, we're confused. But why are we confused? Uh, Matthew Barrett, he's one of a number of theologians who's made the case that we've actually forgotten the Trinity. Uh, we don't know what we're meant to believe or why we're meant to believe it. And so he says this, uh, he says, Many evangelical churches and pastors know they are supposed to affirm the Trinity, and so they do, but if they're being honest, they have no idea why, other than to say the Bible says so somewhere, right? Though they're not sure what verse that might be. Ask them to articulate that same trinity according to biblical orthodoxy and they will return a blank stare. You may be giving me one right now, he says. There's some shots fired. But the question needs asking. If we as 21st century evangelicals genuinely have forgotten the trinity, then what on earth happened over the last couple of centuries? Um, there's another little timeline for you there. What happened in the gap between the 18th century to now? Well, with the last kind of third of our time together in this session, um, that's the question I want to explore together. Uh, I want to suggest that over the past couple of centuries, um, three challenges were laid against the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I want to suggest three challenges were laid against the doctrine and, on the whole, we believed them. That's why we've forgotten the Trinity. Uh, so what are those challenges? Number one, it's not in the Bible. Number two, it doesn't make sense. And number three, it's not practical. The Trinity is not in the Bible, doesn't make sense, it isn't practical. Uh, and I wonder if, even at this point, some of you might resonate with some of those challenges. Uh, so, what I want to do is I want to take you through each of these challenges and show you how they led to us forgetting the doctrine of the Trinity. So, first challenge, it's not in the Bible. And we could start with the basic observation that the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. Um, or... There's certain other buzzwords like person or essence. They don't appear in the Bible either. Um, now, at one level, you could say, well, that's a pretty weak argument just to say that because they don't appear in the Bible. It's not biblical. Because there are heaps of things that we believe that aren't words that appear in the Bible. For example, the word mission doesn't appear in the Bible because it's a Latin word. Um, but we're pretty happy to talk about that, aren't we? But there is actually a far stronger challenge behind this that's gained a lot of traction. Um, so, the argument goes back to a guy named Adolf von Harnack. He lived in the 1800s, and he noticed that a lot of these Trinitarian buzzwords like person and essence, those words came from the language of Greek philosophy. And so he concluded that the Trinity was really the result of Greek philosophy infiltrating and corrupting what he called the pure gospel of Jesus. And so this is how he put it back in 1886. 
He said, dogma, which is doctrine, is in its conception and development, uh, is a work of the Greek spirit on the soil of the gospel. Put simply, the Trinity isn't in the Bible. It's just Greek philosophy laid over the top of the Bible, ultimately corrupting it. That's the first challenge that has led to us forgetting the Trinity. Um, But it's worth stopping to acknowledge that this first challenge actually does get something right. We should never be more attached to theological buzzwords than to the Bible itself. So listen to what the great reformer John Calvin wisely said about all these buzzwords. He said, I wish these terms were buried, if only among all men this faith were agreed on, that Father and Son and Spirit are one God, yet the Son is not the Father nor the Spirit the Son, but that they are differentiated by a peculiar quality. Really, I am not, indeed, such a stickler as to battle doggedly over mere words. Okay, so there's something helpful about this first challenge. Um, But how would you know if you have been influenced by this kind of thinking, like Adolf von Harnack's kind of thinking? Uh, It comes out in something called Biblicism, which, although it sounds like a good thing, is actually a bad thing. Um, Biblicism says, no creed but the Bible. I don't need any of that fancy theology. All I need to make sense of the Bible is me, myself, and my leather-bound ESV. I hope you can see the problem with that kind of thinking. It says, I don't have anything to learn from anyone else, especially those who've gone before me. It says, I'm objective... I'm unbiased, and everybody else is biased. It's proud. Uh, And just as a quick aside, all the big heretics over the centuries, they thought they were the Bible guys. That's the kind of thinking that leads to belief that the Trinity isn't in the Bible. That's how von Harnack thought. Um, So let me ask you, have you ever been tempted to think like that? But that's only the first challenge. The second challenge says uh, the doctrine of Trinity, it doesn't make sense. It's not coherent. Uh, And at one level, some people might think it's a contradiction to claim that God is both one and three. And to some extent, people have always thought that the Trinity is hard to understand. Um, But this this has actually gotten a little sharper over the last couple of centuries. Uh, It goes back to a a man named René Descartes. Uh, He lived in the 1600s, and he famously said the words, I think, therefore I am. And with that one short sentence, he gave birth to what's called rationalism. And rationalism is the idea that we can only really be sure about things that originate in human reasoning and rational thinking. That's what he was getting at when he said, I think, therefore I am. Uh, Put simply, it's a way of viewing the world that says um, human reason, it works its way out into the world and ultimately up towards God. It starts with human reason 
and works its way out from there. There's a little diagram. But all of that means that only things that seem reasonable to the human mind are seen as being valid. If something can't be figured out with the human mind, then it either doesn't exist or it's of no significance whatsoever. But that creates a problem for the doctrine of the Trinity. Because as we saw before, God is totally unlike anything in this creation. And no matter how hard we think about it, we will never arrive at a doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't come from the human mind. Why? Because the good news of the gospel is that God, and specifically the Son, actually came to us. And He entered into this world as the God-man. It's not us working ourselves up to God, it's Him coming down to us. Can you see the claims of Christianity are fundamentally different to the claims of rationalism? Rationalism starts with human reason and works its way out from there. But in the gospel, God comes down to us. Uh, why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is a real mind bender. As I said before, I, worked out, I walked out of my first lecture uh, at Bible College on the Trinity thinking, I have no idea what just happened. No idea. Uh, and this week, I feel like what I'm basically trying to do is give a nice, simple, clear explanation of quantum mechanics. It's, it's a mind-bender. See, there are things that we won't and we can't understand about God's triune nature because He is God. But there's one of two ways that we can respond to that. If we've been influenced by the rise of rationalism, then we'll conclude that if I can't understand it, then it mustn't be true. But... If God really is triune, then that means He is infinitely more than we could ever grasp or imagine, which means that we would expect to not be able to fully comprehend Him. And so our response should be one of humility, knowing that God won't fit inside our tiny heads. But that doesn't mean we should just throw our hands in the air and say, it's all a mystery. That would be to fall into the opposite danger of mysticism. So mysticism, it's actually the other side of the coin to rationalism. See, just like rationalism, mysticism, it, it also believes that the Trinity doesn't make sense. The only difference is, is that mysticism believes that we should believe in something that doesn't make sense. It's content to believe a contradiction. It, it, in a hushed, pious voice, it simply says, it's a mystery. But the problem with this kind of thinking is that the Bible doesn't talk about a mystery being a contradiction. The Bible does actually talk about things that are a mystery, but it doesn't talk about them being a contradiction. What it, what it does is it talks about a mystery as being something previously hidden, but is now 
revealed. And so have a look in your booklet there, Ephesians 3. Paul talks about the mystery of Christ. He says, In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Um, Now, in this particular case, the mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles have been united in Christ. But the whole point of the word mystery is that it has now been revealed. It's no longer a mystery. It's known. And that's exactly what's going on in the doctrine of the Trinity. Because uh, what was previously unknown to human reason became known through the revelation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is important. We aren't called to believe a contradiction. We're called to know God as He has revealed Himself to be. But there's one final challenge to wrap our heads around. The third challenge simply says the doctrine isn't practical. Uh, This challenge really flows out of what we saw from rationalism. Um, It says that if we have no direct access to God through human reason, well, then God can play no significant part in shaping how we think and engage with the world. Uh, And so this is where the great Enlightenment thinker Immanuel Kant, so he actually talked about the Trinity, Immanuel Kant, and this is what he said. The doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally has no practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand it. Now, you might say, who cares? He's just a philosopher, not a theologian. I can't care less about him. Yes. The problem was, is that some theologians believed him. Uh, There was one in particular, his name was Friedrich Schleimacher. You probably haven't heard of him, But he was a heavyweight theologian in the 19th century. And he concluded that in the end, the doctrine of the Trinity, it has no practical significance at all. And this is how he put it. The main pivots of the ecclesiastical, that is Christian, doctrine are independent of the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, the Trinity has no relevance to the Christian faith. It's of no practical significance. And so what he does is he basically just tosses the doctrine aside. It doesn't matter. Um, Now, you've probably never heard of Schleimacher. And maybe you couldn't care less. But how would you know if you've actually been influenced by that kind of thinking? Uh, I think we see it come out in a kind of consumerism that says all this theology is super dry. It's impersonal. It's cold. I mean, where's the life? Let's keep things practical. After all, wasn't that the problem with the Pharisees? You know, they spent all their time arguing about the Bible without ever doing what it actually said. Is that all we're doing when it comes to the Trinity? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Uh, There's something helpful about that kind of thinking, that kind of desire, Um, But we need to be very careful that we don't just want to get something from God in the name of being practical. 
Um, Have a look at what the theologian Scott Swain says about this. He says, Learning to praise the Trinity does not derive its importance or usefulness from its ability to serve other enterprises. Learning to know the triune God, to receive the triune God, to rejoice in the triune God, and learning to help others do the same, is an end in itself. Because the triune God is the ultimate end of all things. Um, Let me remind you of the question we're trying to answer with all of this. How did we forget the doctrine of the Trinity? How is it that we came to give a blank stare when asked about the Trinity? What happened is that first, we believed that it wasn't in the Bible. Then we believed that it didn't make sense. It's not coherent. But then the third and final move is that we believed it wasn't relevant. Uh, That's what Schleiermacher did, uh, and he tossed the doctrine aside. Uh, That is how we, as 21st century evangelicals, forgot the Trinity. Uh, Maybe you've never heard of some of those thinkers before, but we are living in the wake of their scepticism about the Trinity. Uh, So what's the plan for the next four talks? Well, with each of the next four talks over this week, we're going to actually respond to each of those challenges. Uh, So four talks taking on three challenges. So in the second talk tomorrow, we're going to take on that first challenge that says, the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible. Uh, And my aim tomorrow will be to show you that, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical. We're going to get into the Bible. Uh, Third talk, we're going to take on that second challenge that says the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't make sense. And my aim will be to show you that, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is coherent. It's coherent. Uh, And then fourth talk, we're going to actually push even further into that. And in particular, we're going to see how the doctrine of the Trinity lands specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. What does it mean for him to be God and man. Uh, And then in the fifth talk last day, we're going to take on that third challenge that says the doctrine of the Trinity is not practical. And my aim will be to show you that yes, it's not only practical, it is life transforming. Uh, So four talks, Trinity in the Bible, Trinity in theology, Trinity and the God-man, and then Trinity and life. But just before I pray to wrap up, uh, let me encourage you with the words of Augustine of Hippo. He's one of the great 4th century theologians. If you're feeling a little overwhelmed by everything we've covered so far, let Augustine's words uh, be an encouragement to you. He says this, In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. So as we set sail on this journey together, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for revealing yourself as our Heavenly Father in the God-man, your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, and for giving us your Spirit. We pray that we might come to know, love, and worship you as the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, And we pray, may we stay close to your word. 
may we learn from others and may we profit richly as we do this. Uh, We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.